Welcome back to the Adam Schefter Podcast. We are now entering the offseason with the Indianapolis Scouting Combine one week from now and free agency in mid-March, a short time thereafter. And we have entered the period where we will begin to see rosters reset, players on the move, coaching staffs remade, and the moves that matter now that essentially help determine who wins during the course of the season. And today we'll be joined by two men who either work for or have been involved with the Miami Dolphins, both of whom have books that were just released. The first is the Dolphins starting fullback Alec Ingold, whose new book, The Seven Crucibles, an inspirational game plan for overcoming adversity in your life, recently came out where he essentially provides advice about overcoming adversity, embracing change, and improving your life. And then we'll be joined by the man that served as the vice chairman of the Dolphins from 2012 to 2021, also was in an executive role with the New York Jets, Matt Higgins. His first book, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential, also is now out. And Matt Higgins also is a shark on Shark Tank, in addition to being an author and a former NFL executive. So two authors, two motivational books, two men loaded with wisdom and insight. And we're at the time of the year now where it's a good time to read before the Combine and the new NFL year get underway. And both Alec Ingold and Matt Higgins have two new books that are recommended providing some inspirational and motivational advice for you. All right. We're about to head into that period, like I said, where action begins to happen, where the moves made today determine what happens tomorrow. And there'll be no moves more impactful, more significant than at the quarterback position. We know about the prominent names that are out there right now. Aaron Rodgers, most notably, Lamar Jackson, Derek Carr, who is a free agent. But there are a host of other names as well. Ryan Tannehill could be on the move without any guaranteed money left in his deal. The Atlanta Falcons likely to move on from Marcus Mariota. They could save about $12 million in cap space. Matt Ryan will be set free in Indianapolis. A lot of quarterback moving parts coming up, but the biggest, of course, is Aaron Rodgers. We don't know whether his darkness retreat, his isolation retreat, has started, ended, when it does begin. There are a lot of questions about that, but he would seem to be the first big quarterback domino, and more and more, it just seems like he and the Green Bay Packers are destined to divorce. We've laid out the options before. We'll do it again. Basically, Aaron Rodgers could decide to walk away and retire. He could decide to play for another team, in which case he would be traded, or he could return to the Green Bay Packers. Now, of those three options, retiring, being traded, returning to the Green Bay, returning to Green Bay seems like the least likely option, which means that Aaron Rodgers, in all probability, is going to retire or be traded. And so we wait to see if and when that happens, but nothing's going to happen until he gets back from this darkness retreat, whenever that is, and he sits down with the Green Bay Packers to discuss, I think, how they want to move forward. And most people believe it will be moving forward in a way that does not involve Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers' future. But there are questions about whether he'll want to continue playing despite all the guaranteed money out there. Hard to imagine that somebody's going to pass up $60 million guaranteed this year, $110 million guaranteed over two years. But Aaron Rodgers is a free thinker and does what he wants, and we'll see what he ultimately decides to do. I think there are people who believe that retirement is an option, and we'll find that once he sits down with the Green Bay Packers. But again, returning to Green Bay would seem to be the least likely of the three options that are out there. Meanwhile, we have now entered the window in which teams can use a franchise tag on a player, enter Lamar Jackson, who will be tagged if a long-term deal is not done by the March 7th tag deadline. The question becomes, will the Ravens use a regular franchise tag to the tune of $32 million plus million on Lamar Jackson or an exclusive franchise tag over 45 million the exclusive franchise tag would prohibit other teams from negotiating with him 
The non-exclusive franchise tag would mean that other teams could sign into an offer sheet that the Ravens would have the chance to match. And if they did not match, they then would get two first-round draft picks in return. I know some people think the exclusive tag is more likely. I don't know if the Ravens want to venture into that financial territory. If there's another team out there that is willing to create an offer sheet that Lamar Jackson is willing to sign, and if the Ravens want to match it, they can. If not, they take two once. So we'll see what they decide to do there. But Lamar Jackson is one of the other significant quarterback dominoes. And the other one that's available right now, of course, is Derek Carr, who visited with the New York Jets last weekend. Great visit with them. Now we wait to see where else he'll visit. My understanding was he was going to take, quote-unquote, a couple more visits though nothing as of this taping on Tuesday morning have been set up. I would presume that at some point he might visit Carolina. That would be one of the teams that might have some interest. We'll see what other teams emerge in the pursuit of Derek Carr. But that also is an interesting quarterback domino. Not to mention that once we get the free agency, I think maybe the most prominent free agent quarterback out there would be Jimmy Garoppolo, and I think there'll be no shortage of suitors for him. And because of the lack of quality quarterbacks out there, the price for Garoppolo, I think, will be higher than people expect. But again, these are some of the quarterback questions that are going to unfold here in the coming days. Aaron Rodgers, Lamar Jackson, Derek Carr, Jimmy Garoppolo, Ryan Tannehill, Marcus Mariota, Matt Ryan, and on and on we go. Quarterbacks are always the key, and they will be, again, key to this upcoming offseason. All right. Now let's move on to a man who wrote his first book when he's not playing fullback for the Miami Dolphins, a man who essentially forged a career at Wisconsin and then with the Raiders and now with the Miami Dolphins in between playing football and getting engaged and preparing for his wedding this spring, Alec Engel, the Dolphins fullback, wrote a book called The Seven Crucibles, An Inspirational Game Plan for overcoming adversity in your life. When we sat down to talk with Alec Ingold, I did not expect the conversation to go in the directions that it did. What is up? How are we doing? How are you doing? I'm good. It's uh, I'm up in Wisconsin right now, and we're about to get like 15 inches of snow. And it's mm -hmm. like, I don't know what we're doing. I'm in Wisconsin back home when it's February and it's going to snow, not in Miami where it's 80 and sunny every single day. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. What are you doing? Uh, I don't know, man. I'm going back home, giving back. It's it's great to see family, wedding planning. Season, <laughs> uh, man, and get to go back home, see your people. Well, so you're getting married? Getting married this June in Wisconsin. I'm super pumped. Well, it's always a good idea to be planning a wedding in Wisconsin for June in February when you should be in Miami enjoying the temperatures down there, Alec. What the hell are you doing? It's, you know, I... I'm not as experienced. <laughs> I wish we had this conversation earlier. I would have learned. I would have adjusted. We would have been better. See, already you're learning some of the issues that come along with marriage. Because if you weren't getting married, you wouldn't be in Wisconsin in February. I would not be stuck here with the, the 15 inches of snow that we're about to get dumped on. But So, it so, is what, so what happens when you get 15 inches of snow? What are you going to do here? Um, that's a great question. I think we're probably going to shovel some driveways, maybe snowplow. Um, and then we'll, we'll work from there, I guess. We'll try and get out of the driveway. And once we get out of the driveway, then we can figure out what else we want to do <laughs> the rest of the Now, now, hold on. Do you still have a place back there? Are you with your parents, her parents? What's the arrangement here, Alec? We are with both of our parents, just back and forth, right down the street. You know what I'm saying? So we're just going back and forth. Um, week here, week there bumping around and uh yeah we're gonna head back to miami uh this weekend so won't be here very much longer but it's it's good to be back home man good to be up in the midwest a breath of fresh air you know how it goes like michigan man. You, you, you're assuming you're gonna get out this weekend alec we got four-wheel drive <laughs> <laughs> we got four-wheel drive let's, let's see if you get out before we <laughs> start making plans about going back to the warm weather in miami we're going to make it one by by uh, one way or another. We're going to make it good. Well, th that's good. I noticed, by the way, that you had a little wrist, a, a little cast on your right hand. What, what surgery? Yeah. So uh, Christmas this year, um, playing the Packers down. It was the coldest game, home game in the history of the Dolphins franchise. Crazy, 
situation. Uh, one of the last plays, I ended up breaking my hand, uh, trying to make a tackle. And, uh, yeah, so now I'm going to get this thing off in about two weeks, and then we're good to go for the rest of the offseason. Oh, so that was the play that ended your season in that game, right? Because you were placed on IR at the end of the year. No, 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 no. See, no? see we, uh, we, we clubbed it up. Um, so what was it? This is the timeline. Break the thumb on, on Sunday, Christmas. Surgery. Yeah. Play again with the club the next Saturday or Sunday. Um, I think that was, yeah, the, the next Sunday. So, I mean, we had five, six days to get it right. And um, I think we were up in New England and uh, had to, we had to clinch a playoff spot. I mean, everything's on the line. The boys are counting on you. So, um, yeah, we clubbed it up and let, let it rip, man. It's, it, we brought the, the physicality back, the 21 personnel, you know. Did you know that you needed surgery when the season ended, whenever that was? Um, yeah. So as soon as they tried to, like, put it back in place and everything, we had to get surgery that next day. So I had surgery Monday and I played on Sunday. So I had I played six days after surgery. And then we got another one after the season to take everything out. And now now we're good to go. Now we're now we're in the clear. It's the off season. Got about one more week with a soft cast on and I'm good to go. Well, and, and we got what five months left before we can be recovered for the wedding, right? Like we don't want the thumb to be an issue with the wedding, you know, to be yeah. hosting people in the air and doing all kinds of fun things, right? I'm gonna be off of the injury report by by the wedding, no doubt. I'll be full participant. Now I gotta ask you. We're having you on because you just wrote a book called The Seven Crucibles, an inspirational game plan for overcoming adversity in your life. Right? Yep. What made you at your age, how old are you? 25? I'm 26, yeah. 26. What made you want to write a book at 26 while you're still playing fullback in the National Football League for the Miami Dolphins? So I tear my ACL, right? And I'm on, I'm on the training table, and that's where I kind of asked a lot of veterans, what do you do? What do you do to, to be able to get through this rehab? My goal was I wanted to be a better football player after a torn ACL than before. So that was my mindset going into it. And a bunch of guys told me to, like, journal out um, whatever you're feeling on a piece of paper, right? Keep it on a piece of paper so those emotions, those feelings, whatever you're going through mentally, you can put that out there, and then you can show up to work, be accountable, be the football player you need to be, be the leader you need to be. I was a captain at the time of the Raiders. So I, I need to lead a group of men still somehow from IR, from the bench. So that I started journaling. And those journals just kind of morphed into audio files. I started every day to work. About 15 minutes, I would just start talking. And I found a way to kind of pay it forward. To, so the next person that tears their ACL, the next person that goes through hard things, like I kind of knew the answers to the test. I knew how I was going to come back from the ACL and improve as a person, as a human being, as a football player. So then I started writing it down. I want to write it to somebody. And once we got things going, once I started talking that way, um, a book shortly came after that. Like the the uh, manuscript did not take long to write at all, just because that the emotion, the creative tension, it was all there. Like the answers to the test were there. It just had to get to put to a piece of paper. And then I wanted to publish it out um, after the comeback happened, after, after you're back on the field playing ball again. Well, so I get a lot of questions off that. A lot of questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you started journaling, did you know at that point in time that you were going to be turning this into a book? Not at all. That was just for myself, just to stay accountable. Like I just wanted to, all I wanted to do out of it was make sure I was being the best version of myself when I walked into the building. Like I didn't want to carry any baggage. I didn't want my head hanging around these guys that were ultimately making a playoff run. Um, I wanted to be helpful. I wanted to be an asset. So in order to do that, the, the journals were just for me to get those emotions out so I could show up and I could I could train, I could rehab to the best of my ability. So, um, you know, I wasn't holding anybody up. So what gave you the idea during the course of your recovery from your torn ACL that I'm going to turn these journal entries into a book? I think football players are like, I don't know, we love having purpose and love playing for something bigger than ourselves. So like, you know, when you strap up, you put on number 30, you have in gold on the back, you have the dolphins on the front, you have you have that that logo on your helmet that symbolizes all the guys in the locker room. But then when you have to go through all you have to go through to get to the field on Sunday, some guys need something bigger. And <laughs> I think for me, it was let me inspire other people to do the best that they can to be the best version of themselves. So when they see the dolphins, when they put it on Sunday and, and they turn on the TV. 
they're going to see number 30 giving it his all and they they have some sort of connection right and just building that bridge I, I just wanted to help anybody else that was going through something I was going through and just being relatable being real being raw being raw, authentic genuine um to just kind of take the helmet off be personable and uh just connect that way so it gave me a lot of purpose uh to be able to have strength in this comeback and keep myself accountable so that um, when people turn on the TV, they're watching some good football happen. Now, before you wrote the seven crucibles an inspirational game plan for overcoming adversity in your life, had you ever written before? Had you ever written anything of any note in your past? I hardly, I hardly wrote and I hardly read in high school. In college, wow. But, um, wow. Oh, it was, uh, I wrote one letter, like an open letter to, um, Las Vegas when we made that, um, that playoff run. Um, that was released in a newspaper. That was really cool. That was really the first thing I ever wrote. And um, feeling that that feedback of people really responding to someone just being real and just putting your heart out on a piece of paper, um, that's what kind of gave me the confidence, the courage, the support to be able to go out and write this book, for sure. What was that letter? It was a letter of thanks to fans for their encouragement. Can you tell me a little bit about that letter? Yeah, man. I would. I mean, it was another one of those journal things, right? It was another one of those moments of I'm going to try and rehab. It really wasn't to anybody, but it was also at the same time kind of to everyone. It was, it was a way of kind of saying goodbye to Raider Nation because I saw the writing on the wall. Uh, I kind of felt like you know the tides were turning. I probably wasn't going to be back um, the following year. So if I couldn't say anything more, I was just going to write that letter, throw up the deuces, and I was going to go about my business. And um, so it, it was. Right before that, um, I don't know if you remember that week 18 game, Chargers, Raiders. It was Yeah, great game. Sunday night right, game. Um, yeah, and um, I released that like a day or two before just to rally the troops, get everyone excited for the game, make sure Vegas w was putting on uh, for that last home game we had to make the playoffs. And that was kind of like a sayonara. It was a little farewell letter. Um, but I definitely think it was – it was something that was cool to be a part of and get that feedback from that community that you've been a part of for a few years. Writing is hard, Alec. Writing is hard work. You know that. It's right? not easy. And did you have any help? Did you have any help when you were putting together this book or you did it all your own? No, big time. I think taking that manuscript and editing it, you know, I'm used to a rough draft, a round of edits, and a final copy, right? That's it. And um, this thing went back and forth between editor, um, and the publisher about 10 times, nine, 10 times. And that was, that was eye opening to me just to like get down to the fine tooth, like make sure every word is purposeful. Uh, Cause I didn't want people wasting their time. Like it's a quick read. You, you don't have to take more than an hour or two hours at a coffee shop to read this thing. But I do think that every word in there is purposeful. And that's kind of the message wow. that then. Wow. And what's the main message in this book? The main message, just embracing change, you know, don't be afraid of it. And when you have a big goal, when you have a dream, you know, dreams do come with nightmares and having that that fear that you have to overcome taking that first step is the scariest one. So I, I give a lot of advice on how to acknowledge that fear, give give fear a face a little bit, write it down on a piece of paper so it doesn't seem as bad. Right. You, you put it on a piece of paper. You know, you don't manifest it in your head as much. You don't think overthink about it as much. So um, going through that whole process, being able to embrace the change so that you can just go cut it loose, have some fun, find something you love, find purpose in it and, and do the best you can. Like, that's what we're all trying to do. Uh, I think that's really the main message is like giving people a blueprint or a game plan to be able to to chase your dreams. And when adversity comes, have a toolkit, have something to, to be able to use in order to keep chasing that, that dream. Where do you learn those tools from? It was big time with coaches. Uh Coaches, teachers, parents, I, I heard all these lessons all over the place. And then I started really researching, really reading. I got deep into stoicism, stoic philosophy. Um, and that just helped me stay consistent with what I was trying to do. I know Ryan Holiday is a big, big time author. Uh, I read all of his books, uh, a lot of those self-help books. And I'm like, dang, like, that's what Coach Bisaccia was telling me. That's what Coach Chris was telling me in Wisconsin. That's what, you know, Coach McDaniel talks about all the time. So being able to like, I don't know if it's like positive reinforcement, but you hear some, all of these head coaches giving the same messages. I was like, okay, there's, there's some truth to this stuff. So that's, that's a lot of what is in this book. There are similarities between all the head coaches that you've had, whether it was Rich Bisaccia or Mike McDaniel in Miami or whoever else. Yeah. I think there might be like a toolkit. Someone might give them a book that they all read. <laughs> and they all a sit coaching down. manual. 
Yeah, there's a coaching manual at that coach's clinic, I bet. And they all down. But no, the the stories that they tell, it all has those underlying messages. And as a player, when you sit in those meetings, sometimes it hits you and sometimes it doesn't. Right. And it's like whether you can relate to it or not. So this was my shot at just giving new stories, new ways to hit people in a different way. But it is the same messages that you're hearing from parents, teachers, coaches, supporters, mentors. Um, but just maybe with a little bit of an NFL twist to it with, with stories that, that we have going on. Now, I have a real question here, and this is not a cynical question, but did you write this book at all to make any money or did you write it to deliver a message? Because the amount of time that it takes to write a book, having written five of them, is not worth anywhere close to the amount of money you are fortunate to make in writing a book in other words writing books generally speaking is not good business no um and it got to the point i was telling my fiance like when i was putting this whole thing together i she would not read this book she would not read it until she had a a paper copy in her hand yeah and i remember going through this entire process it takes about 15 months to publish this book and by the time i got it I was like, listen, Alexa, if this is the only book I sell, it was worth it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was one of those things where it was everything I needed to be. It helped me stay accountable to to what I had to come back to uh, in the NFL when you're on the street as a free agent with a torn ACL and having to work through that. Um, and at the same time, I knew that if it helps one person, it's worth it. And I know it's a cliche and I know people say that all the time, but that's genuinely how I felt. Like, I, we could... I have no idea what the sales numbers are. I have no idea what it's doing, but if, you know, I get to go to these schools, hand these out to these kids, high school kids, college kids, and just offer some sort of help, it's worth it. And have you gotten any reinforcement back yet that makes you think that it has essentially served its purpose or is serving its purpose, Alec? It's it's great to hear from coaches to be able to say, you know what, when you came and talked to our program, you know, the coach will ask the kids, what was the most meaningful, what was the, the nugget that you took from Al coming to talk to you guys? And for them to say, yeah, there's about 20 to 30 different responses amongst the team. Like yeah. that's possible because that means that whenever we're talking, the messages hit different people in different ways. And that, and I think that's what it takes is like that courage to, to lay it all out the, on the line so that anyone with any background can be able to relate and just try their best. And so when I get feedback like that from coaches about their programs, uh, when I go talk to them about this book, I think that's that's what's really cool and something I was not expecting. Do you still keep a journal right now? Every day. Every day. And I think that's a, it's a daily little deposit that you can make mm. just to keep yourself accountable. And um, yeah, that, I would. that's a big recommendation. Anyone that's, that's listening to this, just a journal. Something to jot stuff down when, when you hear these nuggets or get inspiration from anywhere because motivation is everywhere do you know i have kept a journal every day of my life since 1990 did you know that i did not and that i have every single day of my life documented since 1990 you could say to me what were you doing on may 26th 1999 and we could go into the year 1999 pull up that day and i'd have that day laid out and to your point it is a daily accounting. What do you call it? There's, I've never heard of it that way. A daily, yeah. Da- daily deposit. Man, I love that. I make daily deposits into my life. It's a part of my life, and I couldn't imagine not to. It's it's self therapy. It's an accounting of everything that's gone on. I've recommended it to people, and you know what was funny when I wrote my last book, which was about my wife's late husband who lost his life on 9-11 and it was called the man I never met a memoir. And I went to talk to Twitter, the organization, the group about the book. I spent about an hour there talking and answering questions. And all the questions were about keeping a journal and how to keep a journal and all the benefits that come along with it. And unless you have kept one or are disciplined enough to do it, you wouldn't understand the benefits of it, but it's unbelievable. Success leaves clues, right? And oh. if you're you're going about your day and you have little little things that le- just leave clues to the, those big breakthroughs, right? And it, it you can look back on that, you can reflect on it, you can recalibrate on it, 
it's uh yeah it's, i think that's a big saying that i love is success leaves clues like you, you can go back on all that stuff and see why something happened the way it did and that's see, how you can keep building up that uh that journey that you're on see i did not expect to be having a conversation with a 26 year old fullback who's stuck in wisconsin in 15 inches of snow discussing success leaving clues and daily deposits i was not expecting this conversation to go in this direction alec I, you were thinking uh, we're going to chop it up about a little ISO blocks and strapping up the crab. <laughs> I mean, we'll do, yeah. we'll do both if we need to. <laughs> yeah, I was going to, I was actually going to ask you about both your two prior quarterbacks, who I'll, which I'll ask you about anyway. Number yeah. one, how's Tua doing and, and do you expect him back? Yeah, I know. Tua is awesome. And to be able to see just that his smiling face and getting him back in the facility where, um, when he was getting back into meetings and we're going through things like it's cool to see that dude just being himself, being healthy, being happy. I know he's talking about judo classes now um, to learn how to fall. Right. And it's like, Oh really? Dude, yeah. I have no do. Uh, I have no doubt that that man is going to be um, on a mission next year. So it's going to be fun to watch. Wait, he's taking, he's going to be taking or is taking judo classes to learn how to fall. Yeah. I saw, I saw that somewhere. Um, I can't remember where I saw it, but yeah, it's like, dude is, um, He's going to be very deliberate about this comeback, and I'm excited to watch. How concerning was that watching that up close the way you did? You had an up-close view to all that last year while the country's looking on. What was it like from your perspective, Al? Uh, it's scary, and it's a dose of reality. It just introduces you to the the sport that you play and what you're willing to sacrifice for the guys in the room. Um, yeah, Tua is um, he's, he's an A1 leader, and to see the courage that he had throughout the whole season – uh, to play through ankles or, or whatever it was and, and battle the way he did. Um, yeah, seeing seeing him down in Cincinnati uh, and then getting that new after that Green Bay game was really tough. But you just know how much work he puts in on a daily basis. You see it up close. And, um, yeah, it was just like a dose of reality. I think that's the biggest thing you could say is, like, man, we're really out here sacrificing for one another and to protect each other, right? And I feel like that's where the brotherhood of the NFL kind of comes together and, a guy in your locker room you, you want to take care of um, that much more. And Derek Carr, you play with him in Las Vegas and Oakland, right? Yeah. No, Derek is about on page two or three of the book, I think. He's right off the bat. Um, he was some. He was a leader that, you know, told me some messages that I needed to hear right after that ACL. You know, he went through his own season-ending injury with his leg, um, and having him – just not even let me snap into a funk, not even feel bad for myself because he knows the type of guy I am. You know, we worked together for a few years uh, for him to come to me, you know, after that Sunday night football game and let me know, like, listen, you're going to have to decide how you're going to come back from this thing. Like, make a choice, dude. You got to own it. That Mamba mentality, you know, he's all about um, that Mamba mentality. So having Derek Carr as a leader, I'm excited to see him go wherever he's going to go. Um, I follow all the rumors. Like I'm on ESPN, just waiting to see see all that news, like everyone else. So it, it's <laughs> we got to guess where he's going to go. Knowing him the way you do, was the New Orleans or, or the Jets? Is that what the two favorites in the clubhouse are? Uh, those are yeah. I, I could see Carolina potentially having some interest in him, and we'll mm. see what other teams are out there. But those three teams to me would seem to make sense. There might be another team lurking. I don't know that, but wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, let's – I mean, I'd rather him in New Orleans because I don't want to play him twice a year. Mm. So we'll keep him in the NFC, and I might be able to see – I think we play the NFC South this year. So non, non-conference, non non-divisional game, I think that would be good. You mentioned the sacrifice it takes to play the position, and you obviously mentioned your ACL, and we talked about the two thumb surgeries that you had here in recent weeks. Is it inevitable that a fullback goes through what you've gone through so early in your career and takes the pounding like that position that's a tough position Alec it's a it's a physical position and it's something that you know I have a lot of pride about um I was a quarterback in high school I want to touch the ball all the time I want to make the plays and um once you kind of make that position switch to you know I went from quarterback to linebacker to running back to fullback right in college in like a year or two years and just finding a way on the field helping the team win um kind of turning into a positionalist player and just helping helping the team succeed. I think that's what's really cool about uh, the Dolphins offense right now. And then my, my role on the fullback, you know, we can do ISO all day, but if you want me to line out wide and run a, a clear out route and then block for Jalen Waddle down the field against the Ravens, like I'll do that. If you want me to 
um, take a snap under center on a QB sneak. I'll do that. You know, I, I think there's so many different things that we were doing this last year that made football really, really fun. You know, you got some real skilled players there that you're surrounded by. Tariq, yeah. Jalen Waddell, uh, Raheem Mostert. It's, it's, uh, it's like pick your poison. And I feel like all those guys are so fast. Like I remember watching all those guys running and racing off the line of scrimmage, you know, their, their get offs on the wide receiver position. And I was like, I don't even know how we're both football players. Like I'm going to go hang offensive lineman and make myself feel better about my speed and all that. Like, we'll we'll do our get offs together. So I don't have to go next to any of these wide receivers. Um, shoot, man. It's, it's been fun to see and all the explosive plays we had, you know, it was like a snap of the fingers. We could go for 60 and, uh, you know, late in the season, we were able to find our stride in the run game, be methodical about it. I mean, that's what I love about football, being able to play multiple offenses, do what you need to do um, with, with whatever the game plan is. I think that was, I'm always, I always like getting challenged mentally on a game plan and be able to do a lot of stuff. Are you going on any book tour if you get out of there in the snow, like anything like that at all? Uh, I think a lot of it's going to be talking to those programs, high school, college, you know, football teams, athletic teams, athletic departments. I think that's what, I don't know if it's a book tour, quote unquote, but um, that's where I find a lot of passion and purpose is sitting down in a locker room full of people, you know, corporations, businesses, and be able to do it that way. So that's kind of the book tour, quote unquote, I guess. Yeah. But um, I, I really love that that aspect of this book. Well, when you put boxes of books in the trunk and like when you go there, they don't have to pay you to appear, but then people got to buy the book or something like just to at least cover your costs. Right. I'm not talking about making money. And that way you get to spread your message. Right. Yeah. I think that's a that's a cool way about doing it. So, um, yeah, if anyone was interested or is interested, just hop on, buy a bunch of books, do a bulk order, put in a request through Wiley, whatever it is, and um, be able to show up with 100 books and um, share those out and, and just spread the message of what what it takes to go through a football season, um, how to come back from an injury, and then how it relates to whatever you're going through in, in life, in business, and in, in athletics. Uh, there's so many parallels, and that's what's really, really cool about this deal. But The Seven Crucibles is available on Amazon, right? Anywhere else people could get it? Yeah, Amazon or alecandgold.com. So I feel like that was a pretty solid way to not be confusing about it. If you forget the, the title or Amazon or whatever, alecandgold.com is another way. Just click the link right there. Uh, will I be? Will I make it into your journal today? Your daily, your 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 daily deposit. Yeah, I think the daily deposit already happened, and I was kind of just talking about how we were going to do this podcast. So you're already in it, man. You're already in it, my man. Well, you're going to be in mine too. So we'll be in each other's journals forevermore, right? We're linked that way. Forever, I love my it. my journal entry, brother. I appreciate it. Alec. Thank you very much. The Seven Crucibles, an inspirational game plan for overcoming adversity in your life. Now available, Amazon, alecingold.com. Alec, appreciate your time, my friend. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for, thanks for the time. Thanks for the nuggets. Appreciate it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do, big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest, and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Adam. And from one author, Alec Ingold, to another, Matt Higgins, whose new book, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential, just came out. Matt Higgins, a shark on Shark Tank, an author, a former NFL executive, here to dispense his wisdom. Matt, you got me? There you are. How's everything going? Everything's good. It's a whirlwind, as you know, oh so well, <laughs> right? How has this whirlwind been going for you with Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard, and Unleash Your Full Potential? That's <laughs> nonstop, as you can imagine. Well, you, you, how long ago did your book come out? It's like a decade, right? 
I've had five books come out. Right. What's your last one? And the most recent one was, I'm guessing 2019, roughly. What was your perspective? Like when you put a book out, what is your goal in the short term? Are you trying to make a list? Are you like, here's the thing with books. And we just had on the Dolphins fullback, Alec Engel to talk about his new book. Mm. And as I told him, books, generally speaking, are not great business. There are not many books that make great money. You do books because you have a message that you feel passionate about because you want people to hear your story because whatever it may be. But if I have a lot of people call me for advice about writing books, everybody thinks their book is going to be a bestseller. It's going to be that great story that goes on to become like Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah. And the overwhelming chances are it's not. It's so true. It's not. So no matter, you know, and, and, and it's funny, like people, kill themselves to sell their book. And I, it, it makes me laugh because again, there are books that go on to become bestsellers. I got it. But it's sort of like all the high school football players who want to play in the NFL. That's sort of what it's like to me. Yeah, I I, I agree. And with, with the added variable of the alchemy is unknowable almost, right? Like at least, yeah. at least we have, you know, we have the combine, right? To identify who is most likely to be very successful with a book. It's like, who, you know, you just don't know. Uh, but you still can't help but try, right? Well, of course. And, 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 and I know this because I thought, well, this, this book is going to be different. This book is going to be the one that hits. Like you think it every time. It's that <laughs> message of hope and optimism. And which one, still- which one, which one, which one surprised you by how well it did and which one surprised you? By- well, I would say this the one that I did with, I, gathered together and edited down the speeches of the Pro Football Hall of Famers because that is the penultimate moment of their career. It's a moment when they're talking about what they feel strongest about. Mm. And so this is their life's work crystallized at that moment. And I thought these messages of motivation and inspiration and hope and optimism and their trails to greatness would resonate with people because here you have the greatest football players in the world talking about their journey and how they made it to Canton, Ohio. And I thought, I still think the book didn't sell well. I'm not insulted by that. I'm okay to admit it. It's not a problem. I didn't do it for the money, but I thought that that book would offer a ton of motivation to a lot of different people. Hmm. And it just didn't sell well for whatever reason. And which one surprised you by how well it sold? They all did okay. Yeah, it, 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 it's not like uh, one of them just took off and became like Tuesdays with Maury. They all did fine, but none of them did great, and that's fine. Again, when you start out, like I know when I was writing my very first book on Terrell Davis after he won the Super Bowl MVP, I'm like, well, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be great, and and I was proud of the book, um, but I think it sold like twenty thousand copies, twenty five thousand copies. That's a good number, by the way. You act like that's that's not a big number. I mean, what percent? No, it was fine. It was fine. But my point is that books in this day and age, people, I don't think, and maybe I'm misreading the market, they want to read things in 240 characters. Oh, yeah. They really don't want to read books. (laughs) Their attention span is such that you're not sitting down to read books. Let me say this about myself, Matt. I used to love reading books. Like, I would love sitting down when the season ended. I'd have three or four books that I'd want to read. It's hard for me to read a full book now, like to sit down. This past weekend, I was with my family. We went away for the weekend. It was the first free weekend since Labor Day. I brought a book with me. My friend J.R. Moringer wrote Spare, the Prince Harry story. That's a book. I, that's a book. Now, J.R. does very well. A million copies. And 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 oh no, he you know he, he's an unbelievable author. We worked together back in Denver at the Rocky Mountain News. We lived on the same block. We were neighbors practically. And I love to just see what he does. And I brought the book with me to read. I never read a page. Hmm. I'm going to read it at some point. I don't know when. And so I just think books are tough business. But I'm pulling for your book, Burn the Boats. I know you're out promoting the heck out of it. I know it's a great story. I know your messages and motivation are incredible. I mean, you're talking about a high school dropout who goes on to get his law degree, uh, 
Harvard Business School, an executive with the New York Jets, an executive with the Miami Dolphins, a shark on the shark tank. I mean, you have an unbelievable story. So I will give the floor to you <laughs> to tell us about Burn the Boats and your life and what stands out to you, Matt. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, to to rewind, right? Actually, the genesis of the book for you would appreciate this and the audience would appreciate this is actually Rex Ryan is a big part of this. Wow. Book. Yeah. So um, I, I, back in 2011, we were uh, going to the playoffs against the Steelers, right? We're underdog. Jets are always the underdog. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Rex, you know, would, Rex is a very emotive guy. Uh, and Rex is as as it has he seems, right? Players coach and uh, just a great human being guy, guy you want to get beers and, and wings with. And so uh, the night before he gives a speech to the to the team. And uh, he invokes the story of Cortez, uh, 1519. I don't know how many of the players had known the story before, right? But 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 basically, he tells, tells the players, like, Cortez burned the boats! You know, they had no way home! I'm just asking you to give me one game! You know, it's like this, like, incredible. You know, Rex's jowls animated, you know, he's, he was teary. Rex is the crier. Yeah, uh, yeah he's emotional. <laughs> he's an emotional guy. Yep. And I found so fascinating is the time the New York Times has an article two days later about the you know the the Jets winning obviously won or else there wouldn't be the book or the headline of the book uh, title of the book but uh, they had asked players what was it and they tell the story of the speech of burned the boats and how a lot of them had ascribed that the the motivation to dig a little bit deeper than they thought they had to Rex's speech the night before. Now, you know, some of that's obviously folklore, but I thought it was interesting that that young guys would would would, would talk about that principle. So. Taking a step back for me throughout the course of my life, um, I had been encountering this idea of burn the boats, right? It, would, it comes up in history. Uh, and as I started researching my book to talk about the principles I wanted to share, uh, you realize that this phrase burn the boats shows up from the beginning of recorded history. We only know it like from a moment in time. It turns out Cortez, who was a very bad man, appropriated this idea, but actually uh, Chinese have it as a fable in 207 BC before Christ. The ancient Israel Israelites have their own burn the boat story. So why is it that in every culture on earth and in every century, the, that military strategists know that when you are outnumbered 101, the way you succeed is by elim eliminating your choices, eliminating your escape route and destroying your provisions. And so that's where this all began. Rex Ryan in a ballroom, in a hotel. And, and, and was Rex's speech that night successful to the team? It was successful to the team. And a lot of them had had actually uh, told the New York Times reporter it was a big reason. And it stayed with you all this time, so much so that you made it the title of your book? It did. It's like, it, it, you know, the, the, the concept had come up at different intersections in my life. When I was a young kid and I was desperate, I first learned about Burn the Boats. No, no bullshit, right? And then it just kept happening. And then when Rex Ryan gives the speech and as the article, and as I began to sort of work on the book, I was like, you know what? This book needs to be about Burn the Boats. That's the simplest way to art. Because look, you're looking for a narrative framework, right? To convey the idea that what's holding you back is your unwillingness to commit. And I've always, I've struggled with anxiety and angst all my life. And I wanted a way to communicate that the way to be truly successful is to eliminate those metaphorical boats in your life. And how do you do that? That is a great question. One, you buy my book. Um, number two, <laughs> you know, so so let's talk about how I'm using the phrase. So yeah. the reason why Burn the Boats is, is successful for military strategists is because uh, it's the clarity of crisis decision-making, right? That's why it works, because you actually have less choices. And when you actually have less choices, humans perform better without a backup plan, without a safety net. But we all don't want to live in a hyper-aroused state uh, of anxiety and stress, how do you appropriate that idea and use it during peacetime? And the and the answer is to burn the metaphorical boats that are preventing you from committing to your full potential. And I break that down into two buckets in the book. What are the internal obstacles that prevent us from going all in? What are the external? On the internal, a lot of it begins with legacy issues going back to childhood. My metaphorical boat for me that's on the cover is a little, it's meant to be a little paper boat floating in a bathtub. It's, it's uh, on fire. There it is. Uh, because for me, there were a lot of issues about shame. Uh, that were holding me back. I, I grew up in a little Roach Motel in Queens, a shoebox apartment, taking care of my mom. 26 years, never had a single person over. And my mother died the day I became press secretary and I couldn't save her. And so I realized for years and years and years, I've been trying to go back to that apartment and save her. And I couldn't reach my full potential until I went through therapy and healing uh, to break through. 
that's just one example. A lot of us have legacy issues from childhood that we haven't reconciled. It could be imposter syndrome, right? It could be that you walk into a boardroom and you feel like you don't belong and it's holding you back. Yeah. So the book is meant to give you actionable tips about how to overcome those internal and external issues. How long did it take you to write it, Matt? Uh, from beginning to this interview, it's been uh, three years. So, uh, you know, whiteboarding process. I'm a pretty thorough person. So whiteboarding book proposal. The pandemic was the tipping point because on the first day of the pandemic, I said, okay, well, the 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 typical FaceTime that would chew up a lot of my clock, so to speak, is gone now. What do I do with that time? And so I decided to double down on writing this book. And had you ever done any significant writing before writing Burn the Boats? Well, uh, actually, the answer is yes. I was a cub reporter for a newspaper in Queens, New York, called the Queens Tribune. I was a muckraker. I had a column called the Trib Action Desk when I was uh, 18 years old. And people would send me their problems. Uh, and I would blow them out of proportion uh, into big articles. And I won a lot of journalism awards as a kid. Really? Yeah, yeah. I won uh, New York State Press Association first place journalism award <laughs> for a series. You'll love this story. The series was about a catering hall in Queens uh, uh, in an old uh, fairground, you know, the, uh, in uh, Flushing Meadow Park. And it was called Asbestos on the Menu. And I had seen an RFP from the government and the Parks Department. And buried in the RSP was the, whoever is the new uh, concessionaire will have to remove uh, asbestos because the kitchen is laden with asbestos. I'm like, huh, shouldn't that be the thing that's done today rather than tomorrow? And anyway, long story short, wrote a whole series of articles. And uh, and at the time, uh, Carl Bernstein was on the board of the parent company and he liked the article so much he nominated for a Pulitzer. Now you could nominate your nephew for a Pulitzer. So that sounds right. better than it is. But yes, I have always been a writer at heart. Carl Bernstein nominated you? He did. He did. Now I have to just I have to put the asterisk there because, like I said, you can nominate anybody you want, but he sent a letter in nominating for a Pulitzer. Uh, clearly, I didn't win, or I would have a very different career. Uh, and I'm, I want to get back to you becoming a press secretary, you becoming an executive with the Jets and Dolphins. Uh, but I first want to tell you my Carl Bernstein story. Oh, please. So Carl Bernstein nominate was, you for a Pulitzer too? Not quite. One of the most famous journalists in history, maybe I would say top five, right? Like, right. like I mean, Woodward, Woodward, Bernstein. Woodward Bernstein, right? I mean, who's more famous than them? So my wife and I on our honeymoon went away and watched one movie on the last night of the trip, Heartburn, which is the story of Nora Ephron being married to Carl Bernstein, getting pregnant and him having an affair while he was married to her. Mm. And we watched this movie, my wife and I, my wife loved the movie. And I had just moved to New York from Denver. So I sold my house in Denver. My wife owned a house in New York. And with the money that I had for my house, I bought a house in Sag Harbor mm. out on the island, right? I'm near Sag Harbor. Yep. Okay. So we go out for our very first morning in Sag Harbor the day after our honeymoon. It's nine in the morning. My wife has arranged for a bevy of deliveries, furniture tables, garbage room. Like, it's just a madhouse on this quiet cul-de-sac. There's a knock on the door at 9 a.m. Friday morning in the first morning of our new house in Sag Harbor. I open the door, and the gentleman goes, I'm your neighbor, Carl Bernstein. And I said, the Carl Bernstein? That's amazing. And he said, I guess. And he was not happy with all the noise. That my wife had brought to the neighborhood and he did not care for all the noise that those deliveries and our kids made. And he was not happy to have us as a neighbor so much so that after one year, my wife was tired of him and we sold the house. There's my Carl Bernstein story. Really? Watching him on Harper having him knock at our front door the very next morning. You have a very different Carl Bernstein origin story <laughs> than my happy little story that I shared. <laughs> Pretty wild. Okay, so how do you go from being nominated by Carl Bernstein to press secretary for the mayor of New York? Yeah, so I talk in a book a lot about um, this idea of leverageable assets, right? That, that I believe that everybody has a leverageable asset. It's one of my first early insights at 
kid. Look, my burn the boats moment, by the way, was when I dropped out of high school and I was 16 and uh, got my GED in order to start college early. That was sort of, that was, that was an insight I picked up from watching my mother go as an adult and getting her GED. And that pulled forward my entire career by two years. I went from being an outcast, a high school dropout to next thing you know, you know, I'm, I'm in college at 16. And by the time I was 18, I had my, my own column. And I think by the time I was 20, it was the the nomination. Um, But so what was my leverageable asset to escape out of poverty? At that time, it became communication skills. I was a good writer. I had been profiled in the Daily News. It was trib action. Matt Higgins, a real action hero, play on my column. Uh, wow. you know, but the long and the short, I got hired to be basically a grunt in the mayor's press office by handing out clippings. But I was a good writer. So they had me ghostwrite speeches for Giuliani without my name on it. Right. Now I'm a little defiant, a little bit of a lone wolf. And so I was like, well, if I'm good enough to write those speeches, I'm good enough to be deputy press secretary. And um, when they didn't give me that job, uh, I quit. And uh, they brought me back four months later as deputy press secretary. And I think at that point I was 23. So always asking, what is my leverageable asset to climb, 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 climb? So and how do you go from there, deputy press secretary for Rudy Giuliani in New York, to becoming an executive with the New York Jets. Right. So one, so they, um, I actually quit again when I was ready to be press secretary. I was like, well, I, I should be press secretary, right? And they're like, well, you're like 12, you know? And I'm like, so. Uh, but anyway, I left. And then, you know, like, well, there's not going to be a rematch. You know, you're not going to come back. <laughs> and I was in law school at night. And then I get a phone call in April. It's the end of the administration. Uh, and they offered me the job of press secretary when I was 26, which was a really tough decision because I'm taking care of my mother. Uh, you know, she's she's our home is disintegrating. We have no money, but I'm in law school, too. And I'm like, how am I going to be the press secretary to the mayor of New York at 26 juggling law school? But, you know, we don't get to choose the timing of opportunities. Right. We have to take them when they when they come our way. It's opportunities on an inexhaustible resource. So I so I took the job and my mother died that morning, uh, which is wow. my, my greatest failure. Um, and then 9-11 happened uh, five months later. So I was with the mayor managing the worst terrorist attack in, in history and spent two years thereafter uh, helping oversee the rebuilding effort as chief operating officer of a new agency created to rebuild lower Manhattan. There's a lot there. Right, there was and a lot there. I just wanted to give you the clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, 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 I'm, but I'm curious, you say greatest failure with your mother. What, what was your greatest failure, Matt? I mean, I did... So I come up with this radical burn the boats move, which is the drop out of high school. And the book talks a lot about why is that a quintessential burn the boats move. So I'll skip some of it. But the point is, I go from 16 years old, you know, scraping gum underneath tables at McDonald's, making 375, working at a deli on Woodhaven Boulevard in Queens, making five bucks to making $105,000 a year as press secretary to New York in a decade as a high school dropout, 11 years of education, all just so I could save her life. And have my own, right? Like, I'm not some hero kid who wanted to be the parent of my mother. I really wanted to get the hell out of there, but I wanted to do the right thing, too. I was pulled in two different directions. And for her to succumb, I mean, she had a, she had oxygen tubes in her nose in the morning. She asked me not to go to work. And I was like, we have no money left. So the la- that's the last conversation I have with somebody whose life I was trying to save. And then she dies. So my career goes on to this crazy trajectory. And the one thing I, I did it all for will elude me forever if I'm being perfectly honest. So I like talking about that because we tend to think when we grow up and we're in our forties or fifties, it's like, get over it already. Right. And, and many of us aren't over it. I'm not over it. A lot of people listening to it aren't over it, whatever it is. So I've tried to create a no judgment zone, um, but that's why I call it the failure. Now the, the opportunity is that I witness what it's like to have no power, what it's like to, to suffer and have no resources, have no healthcare, have no anything. And how there's no cavalry coming, number one. But two, if somebody had just intervened when I was a little kid, my mother could have had a normal life. So I feel like I have an obligation through this book, through my money, through my platform, to maybe redistribute some of it so I could ameliorate suffering. So the benefit of all that pain is that I'm, it's opened my eyes to what powerlessness looks like, and I've devoted a lot of my energy to it. Now, there are many ways we can be rewarded for writing a book. What would be the way that would make you feel good about the three years that you poured into this? Has it already happened? Has somebody come up to you, said they read it and said that it impacted the way they thought? Would it be somebody sending you an like, what do you envision 
success for burn the boats to look like man i love this question because there's tactical success which is the 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 stamp of approval because that's what gets people to buy it if you're being crass right like the lists make people think the book matters which makes people more people read the book success to me is the random note on instagram or from somebody saying and this has happened which is almost takes my breath away that says i don't have a support structure around me or anyone to believe in what I suspect about myself, but your book made me cross the threshold. Like it just happened the other day. Somebody who did a segment for me about the book, like was so moved by the book that they quit their job in the middle of editing the book. And like, it, it makes me want to pass out. Like I'm being honest. So I've gotten a few of those. One woman from, from uh, South America has decided to move to the United States after reading the book. Like, and these aren't people who are delusional or grandiose. They were people who suspected they had more to give but they had nobody to hold up a mirror to their inner core. And my book held up a mirror. That's full stop success. If I can scale what I believe is an actionable blueprint and be that guide for somebody else, that feels like a a life worth living. I know it sounds corny, but what could be greater than having that trajectory changing impact in somebody's life? So that's starting to happen. Now, of course, after an hour, after somebody sends me though, I'm like, yeah, but you know what I mean? Like you, you, I don't know if you went through this psychologically, but a book is a very gut wrenching experience and you, and I, and I'm already, I'm already analyzing how it could have been better. Oh yeah. Well, you, you could work on a book and never have a stop date and continue to work on it for the rest of your life. Like continue to just modify it and modify it. I would imagine in football parlance, it's a little bit like a coach with a game plan. He could continue to modify that game plan as long as he has, but the game is Sunday. It's got to be played just like the book has to go to print. It's due, and the publisher is counting on putting it into print. So you, Matt Higgins, have to stop writing Burn the Boats at some point and just say, we're done with it, even though you could continue editing it, changing it, revising it for the rest of your life. Yeah, that is the part that's good about the modern day era with social is that I could take concepts that I felt like I, you know, the editor, whomever felt like couldn't go so deep in a book, maybe as I like to geek out on science and studies. And now I can tease them out publicly, which is which is great. And the other thing is, if the book does well enough, which hopefully it will, and already it seems like it's impacting and influencing many people, there could be burn the boats too. There could be burn the boats or or burn the bridges or burn the books or or burn the bots for Twitter story about Elon Musk, whatever. You you could do whatever you there. There are many derivations of it. You could do whatever you want with it. There are many, but people are getting the message about it because I've seen you out and about. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't answer your question. You said, well, how did I go to there to the jets? It's because back to leverageable assets. Like when I was overseeing the redevelopment of the trade center as the chief operating officer, on the one hand, I could narrowly define myself as like a government worker, but I was like, well, that's not my destiny. Well, I could say I do PR. Well, that's not my destiny either. What I was doing was helping reconcile these constituencies on the most complicated development project in the history of the United States, maybe the world, right? And the New York Jets, having always been, you know, the cousin in our own stadium, we're in need of somebody to help run the stadium effort. So I wasn't a natural born sports executive, but I was the right guy to hire to help oversee a stadium campaign. That's how it started. And I'll leave you with this. If you were going to be a guest on the Shark Tank, as you've been, how would you sell Burn the Boats to the people there on the panel? Oh, I love that. Okay. A lot of business books are very redundant and they're written as if they're reference manuals. That's not how people assimilate information. That's not how we learn. We learn through storytelling. Burn the Boats tells the story of your potential. It holds up a mirror to your inner core and confirms what you already suspect you are made of. And it gives you that little push. It not only through me, but 50 different other celebrities, founders, billionaires, athletes, all who struggled with something, a metaphorical boat that they needed to burn just like you do. And the book will leave you even more than with than information. It will leave you with a feeling that'll linger infinite possibility. And which of those sharks should be the most likely to be a partner in the venture? Such a good way. Um, Robert Herkovic, because he's very, yeah. he's very emotive. Robert's very sensitive, very tortured sweetheart. So probably Robert would come along with me. Hey, Matt, I want to thank you very much for the time today. I wish you the best of luck with Burn the Boats. I hope it becomes the bestseller that it sounds like it's destined to be. And I hope it continues impact lives as it already has. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care, Adam. And there is the author of Burn the Boats, Shark on the Shark Tank himself, Matt Higgins. We thank him and Alec Ingold for their time. All right. We are now getting ready 
to head out next week to Indianapolis for the scouting combine. It's always, to me, the unofficial official start of the NFL New Year. Now, I know the NFL New Year does not begin until Wednesday, March 15th, 4 Eastern. But when everyone assembles in Indianapolis next week to watch players work out, to interview those college standouts, it really does begin the offseason because every NFL team is there in attendance, every front office, every coaching staff, every agent, and everybody is getting ready to do all the business that's going to unfold over the next month or so in regards to free agency, trades, moves, contract extensions, and everybody is getting together in Indianapolis to begin to lay their path to make these moves happen. And so again, this upcoming week really is the start of the NFL offseason when the NFL world descends upon Indianapolis, what I call the biggest football convention there is, where everybody in the NFL is all in one city, in close proximity, restaurants, bars, gathering round, multiple conversations. I've been going to the Combine every year since, I believe, 1993, early on, when there were only a handful of reporters attending, and now it's morphed into a ginormous event with thousands of people attending because everybody in the football universe is there trying to make things happen and getting ready for all that's going to unfold in the National Football League over the course of the next month or so. All right, you already know about the Low Post with Zach Lowe and the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorse. But if you listen to the C.J. McCollum show, where every week New Orleans Pelican star C.J. McCollum discusses names and storylines in and around the NBA with inside perspective you can only get from someone in the locker room and on the floor. That's the C.J. McCollum Show. Listen where, oh, listen where you're listening to this podcast. All right, we want to thank author, fullback, Alec Ingold. We want to thank author, shark on Shark Tank, NFL executive, Matt Higgins. I want to thank my great producers, Sarah Abbott and Christina Buswell, for putting together this podcast. And for you, the listener, to tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week as we'll be leaving for Indianapolis and we will bring you more information, insights, and interviews in this very spot. Until then, have a great week, be well, and stay safe.